Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. Our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by bringing them out of isolation and into a sisterhood of women who can stand alongside each other as we heal and grow both in and out of the NICU. Our hope is that through interviews with trauma-informed medical and maternal mental health experts and vulnerable stories from NICU mamas themselves, that you would feel connected to the Dear NICU Mama Sisterhood around the world. So whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. This episode of the Dear NICU Mama podcast is sponsored in part by an educational grant from Prolacta Bioscience. By unlocking the biological power of human milk, Prolacta is changing the lives of critically ill infants around the world. To learn more, visit prolacta.com. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your host, Martha, and... Ashley. Ashley Ham. I get to see you tomorrow. I know. I can't wait. It's so funny. We are always hustling and bustling, so I never really get to take in the fact that I get to hug you, see your face, see your glimmering blonde hair in person. It will be <laughs> so Glimmering blonde hair. I think my purple shampoo for that. It's pretty oh, brassy these days. That's nice. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I also was using purple shampoo because it was leftover children's shampoo that was in my uh, sh- shower. So that's okay. where I'm at. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, now that we're done sharing hair tips, I guess, um, I th- how, are, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Doing great. It's a rainy day today, so yeah. I sat at a coffee shop for a half an hour and my love tank was filled, so I feel good to do this. This is going to be fun. That's amazing. You're so good at that. You're a very wise person. How are you doing today? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm here. I know that I'm doing well right in this moment because I get to talk with you and our special guest. And that's really all that I could ask for today. Amen. (laughs) Uh, So on the podcast, you know, sometimes we have the opportunity to interview experts in the fields of neonatology or maternal mental health or obstetrics. Um, And sometimes we get the opportunity to interview specific moms and families about their NICU journeys and their their lives and experiences. And that's what we get to do today. Um, Ash, do you want to talk a little bit about what we've been doing this season? Yes. So season six has been heavily focused on growing our families after NICU and really too, just this whole conversation of growing our families. I think um, having a NICU experience really reveals that motherhood is not always linear, that it doesn't always, it doesn't always look simple. And so we've wanted to share as many diverse stories um, and NICU journeys as possible. And one of those perspectives and journeys we haven't had the chance to share yet is about foster NICU motherhood. And so we are really excited to have Mama, NICU Mama, and Foster NICU Mama, Sarah Yates on today. So Sarah, hello and welcome. Hey. I received your information from a, a foster mama that I know, and when she told me a little bit about you and I started reading your Instagram, I was really, really excited to reach out. So thanks yeah. for being willing to be on here today. Yeah. No, no problem. It's uh, also thank you for enduring some technical challenges. There will be a day <laughs> in our life where we're able to start recording the podcast within like five minutes of getting on the call, but we've not experienced that yet. So thank you for coming along this technological journey with us, Sarah. Okay. 
I'm glad I'm not the first oh, one. No, so. never. It's always something time. different too. It's like, you know, it's, I don't know, sun flares or satellite fell out of the sky or something. So, <laughs> well, Sarah, can we hear a little bit about your NICU motherhood journey before we dive into the episode? Yeah. So it really, that starts back in like 2020. So I have been a NICU nurse for about five years, um, but back in 2020, um, I met this little girl um, who was three months old and she had a bunch of complex medical needs. I had never seen a baby quite like her before, but by the end of my shift that day, I had just fallen like absolutely in love with her. Um, and over the next few months, it became obvious that she was going to be coming into foster care. Um, so talked my husband into it and yeah, we decided we were going to foster her. She got placed with us. Um, she had a trach and a G-tube, and this hospital required, um, yeah, uh, like round-the-clock home health nursing. Mm-hmm. So we had to get all of that in place, which is a huge pain yeah. in the butt. Mm-hmm. And so around her first birthday, we finally got to take her home. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. That is incredible. And I suppose, too, uh, how uh, – one question. It's not on here. We're already um, – jumping, I guess. But how did you choose to become a NICU nurse? Like what led you down that path? Uh, I think I had always been like a little bit interested in it because oh, I'm the oldest of seven kids. So we were oh my gosh, at the hospital all the time for new baby siblings and stuff. And I had spent a couple weeks in the NICU when I was a baby. So even as a young oh. kid, I would walk past it. and I'd be like, oh, that's where I was like when I was little and stuff. And so uh, went into nursing school. NICU was near the top of my list, but I was also interested in like ER and pediatrics and stuff. Um, but by the end of nursing school, I had like landed on that NICU is definitely what I wanted to do. Wow. And so are you still a NICU nurse today? Do you still go in for shifts? Yes, I am just PRN right okay. now. Though. Like I'm working two shifts this month and like four next month. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> So going back to a little bit of what you shared of, you know, becoming uh, a foster parent, you know, what was that process like for you? And prior to meeting your daughter, was that something that you always felt led to do? Uh, Yeah. So I had been wanting to do foster care for a few years, even before I got married. I was bringing it up to my future husband at the time and saying, like, this is something I really want to do. I hadn't like majorly considered fostering kids with medical needs yet mm. at that point. It was just, I think it was more like this vague idea until I actually met Zariah. And I imagine too, then being a NICU nurse, obviously then you started to become so much more aware of different medical complexities and disabilities that surround um, kiddos who are in the NICU, like you alluded to, Zariah has the you know, the G-tube, there's, you know, kids who come home on oxygen, there's all different types of, of needs and different levels of care that kids require. So did that kind of help you um, prepare the way or, or make you more comfortable with the idea? Oh, yeah, I felt very comfortable with the idea of taking yeah. her home. It actually, me and my husband both said it went like way smoother than we actually thought it would. Um, but yeah, I saw lots of NICU babies come into foster care, most of the de- most of them didn't have like super complex medical needs, but we would have one here or there that would. Luckily, one of them, yeah, ended up going with a grandparent and stuff, which was great. Um, yeah, being that you were already a NICU nurse, what was it like to then officially become a NICU mom? And when did you really feel like, okay, this is also a part of like who I am and my title? It felt really weird at first. Sure. Um, <laughs> 
to go into my place of work and be like a parent mm-hmm. and not a staff member and it I think people like found out slowly over the course of like a week or two that like we were fostering her um yeah and so it was kind of weird just like walking into work in my normal clothes <laughs> and just walking yeah back, back into one of the pods and sitting at her bedside and stuff and all of the her nurse always like knew and then after a couple of weeks everybody knew but if I felt kind of out of place, like I would sit there and just be holding my sweet baby. And then I, all my coworkers are like running around and like with an admission and things are crazy and stuff. And I feel like I should help them, but I right. can't because I'm not on the right. What I'm supposed to be yeah. doing right now. I'm just, just sitting here. <laughs> yeah, for real. And I think I felt weird calling myself like her mom for a while because I don't know. I had everybody had known her for like a maybe two or three months before like I actually became her mom so I don't think I really like truly Mm -hmm. felt like her mom till we took her home yeah for sure and what was it like to you know bring her home you know I know you said that you guys were up for the challenge of some of like the medical complexities but you know what was it like those first weeks together at home um, well, we lost all of our home health nurses in the first two oh and a half God. weeks. So I was like, oh, we waited five months to get all of these nurses in place. Well, and yeah, most of them quit. And then one of them we had to fire because she was just like super neglectful. Mm. I probably won't get Yeah. But yeah, it was bad. No, I mean, I think, and what you're talking to and alluding to, you yourself work in uh, as a medical provider, but unfortunately home health care and home health nursing there's like this huge shortage nationwide and it's really hard to find specific people and especially if you're a trait kiddo or you need round the clock um supervision on on things like that it's it's so hard to fall and if you don't find those people then it's you right you and your partner 24 hours Mm -hmm. a day right it's that's a lot of work for you two Yeah. So for like a week, it was just kind of me and her, but it was fine because I took my FMLA whenever she came home and stuff. And so we just kind of chilled yeah. out for like a week or yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. When you um, kind of started to take on that mantle of being her mom and a NICU mom and a mom of a medically complex kiddo, um, did it change your perspective as a nurse as well? Um, I think it did a little bit. Um. But I think being a nurse changed my perspective being a medically mm-hmm. complex mom more than, like, the other way around. Like, if I yeah, hadn't sure, been sure. a NICU mm-hmm. nurse and had a kid with, a, like, medical complexities, like, I would have approached it very differently. Yeah. Sure. So you alluded to that you shared a lot about um, Zariah's life and death. Uh, you, I think you've told us you, you're, you've been featured on other podcasts and you shared her story. Um, and I – as a, you know, I also lost a, an infant and I know it's just an, and it's an insurmountable pain that can never be, um, filled. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are just really, um, moved and honored that, that you'd be willing to come on and share about, about her here too. Um, I wonder if you'd be willing to share with those listening ab- about her and, 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 um, the things that made her special, um, and about her life and death. A little bit yeah so yeah she was a very special unique little girl um one of the most medically complex kids we had had in the NICU before but she was yeah very alert like very happy little one she couldn't move a whole lot but she was always like smiling and laughing and stuff 
She recognized people and voices. Um, yeah. She couldn't move her little arms at all, but she could move her feet fairly well. And so we taught her how to play with like all these different toys with her feet and stuff. And they were working on like, they were going to start working on like communication boards with her that she was going to do with her feet and stuff. And we would play little games. I had taught her how to give me kisses on the cheek. I would say, Zariah, give me a kiss. And she would turn her cheek and then like lean her face into, yeah, into my cheek. Oh my gosh. It was very sweet. She was very attached to us. Uh, my grandma just has no experience with kids with medical needs and stuff like that. And so I told my grandma, I'm like, oh yeah, she knows who mommy is. She knows who daddy is. And my grandma wasn't really believing it and stuff. I think she was just also a little bit intimidated by all of this because I don't think she had seen a baby or a one-year-old with a trach before. So then she mm-hmm. asked her and she was like, Zariah, where's mommy? And she throws her head back and looks at me. And then they do that two more times in a row. And then by the end of that, my grandma was like convinced like, oh yeah, she, she knows who mommy is. Mm. That's so beautiful. Mm. And I think too, like how wonderful is that these kids, they get to, um, uh, they, they come into these spaces and how like quickly they're just like joy takes over the room, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and the space and even with limited communication verbally, there's all these other ways that kids can engage. Um, and that's so important to recognize. Yeah. They had done some like neuropsych testing on her and in all areas, she was like significantly, significantly behind average, but her receptive language was like just barely below average. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, she understood a lot of different things and which was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, uh, tragically, Zariah has passed away. And um, I wonder if you can share a little bit about how that happened and the effect that it had on you and your family. Um, yeah. So, we had just gotten back from vacation, um, took everyone with us. We took Zariah like absolutely everywhere with us. So, she came on vacation. Mm-hmm. We lugged all the stuff with us, we loaded everything into her medical stroller. She went all around the amusement park with us and everything. She got to ride the train, which she wasn't super thrilled about, but <laughs> we, we made sure she was a part of everything. Um, so yeah, we had just gotten back from vacation. It was my first day back at work. Um, so she was being watched by one of her home health nurses who had been working with us about seven to eight months. Uh, my husband was working from home that day because Zariah had an appointment um, later in the day um, and he had gone out um, to do like a Walmart grocery pickup. He had said goodbye to Zariah and she was like smiling at him and stuff as he went out the door. Um, And then, yeah, I get a call while I'm at work um, and it says that, and they say EMS says that Zariah is in cardiac arrest and that nothing they're doing is working. And I'm just in like complete shock. Like I almost didn't even take the phone call because I'm at work. I'm not really supposed to take a phone call, but I just felt like, I needed to answer this phone call. And so I went into one of the empty patient rooms and I like walked back out and I think I just had like this blank stare on my face and I like barely was, was able to get the words out. And yeah, one of my supervisors was there and she was like, let me drive you. Cause they said, yeah, they're like, get home as quick as you can. We'll like keep doing CPR until you get here. I don't even think I was like, I don't know. You're just in shock. Like you can't even like fully process like what's yeah. even going on at this point. Um, so Hop in my supervisor's car. She's like, you're not driving right now. Um, just leave my patients, which is technically like patient abandonment, but obviously I didn't really care at that point. Um, but then as we're pulling out, I get a call from them back and says, okay, we got a heartbeat. 
we're bringing her to the hospital, like the hospital where I'm working at right now. So we turned back around. We had just barely left the parking lot. Um, go over to the ER. Uh, my supervisor's waiting for me in the waiting room at the ER. And then, yeah, I see the ambulance coming and there's literally like six police cars accompanying with the, all of their lights on accompanying the ambulance. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never even, I've never even seen this many people accompany an ambulance to a hospital before. Yeah. Um, my husband was in one of the cop cars fo- following them. Um, he had gotten home a couple minutes before EMS got there and he act- was actually the one that started doing CPR on her and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As soon as I see him, I just start like crying hysterically because I just haven't even been able to get tears out or anything at this point because I've just been in like so much shock. Like it doesn't feel real at this point. Uh, we're not even really able to get to her because they're like working on her so much. And so they take us into the room. That's like across from the one she's at and the social worker comes in and talks to us and stuff. And, uh, I kind of get the story of what happened. Uh, my husband shared some of it. The EMS shared some of it. My husband's not thinking clearly either right now. So there are some things he left out. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of figure out that, um, when my husband had gotten home, the, home health nurse had already called 911 uh, because she wasn't breathing but she never checked to see if her trach was still in and so her trach was actually out um for probably at least like 10 minutes um before my husband came home and put it back in he noticed almost immediately was out and started cpr on her yeah and yeah and over next few days yeah we were spend time in the PICU. Um, they originally thought she was brain dead, found out she wasn't brain dead. But then on day two, she had like a significant decline in brain activity. Um, and so eventually we had to make um, the decision to remove life support, which is no decision any parent should ever have to make. I even almost wanted to change my mind about it on the last day, but I felt like it was kind of God's sign that it was her time to go because the day before we were like, we're going to remove life support on Tuesday. And of course the day before I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, am I making the right decision? How can I go through in this and stuff? And her body, which had been pretty stable had started like shutting down at that point. And so I felt like that was a sign like, okay, like this is the right decision. Like you're not, you're not killing your baby. She's already, she's already going. And we were hoping at that point to donate some of her organs, but she took like 15 minutes too long to pass which was really hard for me to process too because that was like the one thing that was giving me like a little bit of peace about the situation um yeah yeah it was yeah hardest thing I've ever gone through yeah it was it was so hard yeah sorry I can't even really get the right words out right now yeah well first I mean Thank you for being so vulnerable mm-hmm. and sharing that because it's, it's a, to, to hear the story of a life and death is, is, um, it's an honor and it's the way that you, we know about her, right? Like this is the way that we pass her on. So we feel very blessed and honored mm-hmm. to, to hear you share. And also it's, it's just so incredibly sorry for, for your loss because there isn't a way to fill the void that there's nothing anyone can do that makes it better especially in this way too that there's a lot of different complexities and overlapping things there's the medical complexity the questions of what could or could not have been prevented like the the 
the questioning of all those things makes it really hard, I imagine, to bear. And I also, I really identify as well with your, we also had to take our son off life support. And I, it's a, it's something obviously like you never think about doing, but it's, it's really challenging to know when is the right time? How long do you wait? I, you know, like you said, do you, you, you kind of have to make this impossible decision and and just have faith that it's the right one. Um, Yeah. And I think also with my medical experience, like in my head, I knew it was the right decision because I have all this medical knowledge and stuff. And I'd even, this is something most people don't think of, but I had even thought about like what I would do in situations like this. But then of course you're actually in a situation and you're like, I know I said this is what I was going to do, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's so hard. And Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, my head knew that it was the right decision. But when you're just like holding your daughter in your arms, how can, it's like, yeah, it's so hard. It's just that huge cognitive dissonance of, yeah. even though you know that it's the path forward, it doesn't feel right at all. Mm-hmm. Nothing about it feels right. I, And I think um, it seems like you've done such a wonderful job of, of processing through that decision and and honoring yourself and, and really being kind to yourself about really an impossible thing. And, um, that, and, and honestly too, what a blessing that Zara had, you, you both had each other, right? You two were uniquely suited for each other as mom and daughter. You know what I mean? You were, mm-hmm. you were kind of made for each other in that way. Mm-hmm. I, and that, and, then, and there's so many other elements to it too, Sarah, that sound just like utterly traumatic, like the medical trauma of it all too, not being, you know, even how you were describing the ambulances and the police cars you are an experienced medical provider but to to have those see that and also to see your partner go through it too is really hard how do you to move through your grief day by day how has it changed over time well initially I was super numb um like the when we removed life support like bawling hysterically and stuff but whenever they took her out of the room it was like all of my emotions just like shut off and I like walked out of that hospital without her and I like didn't literally did not feel a thing yeah which that which this kind of lasted a few weeks and I was feeling really guilty about it because I'm like I should be like a hot mess right now but I feel like nothing yeah like I didn't shed a single tear at her funeral and my mom was talking to me and she was like everyone grieves differently she was like you grieved for an entire week in the PICU mm-hmm. like yeah yeah and then I've like gone to therapists and stuff like that and they made me feel better and she was like this is literally like your body trying to protect yourself because your Mm -hmm. body like literally could not handle this anymore and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I felt a lot of guilt about like my lack of emotion those first few weeks afterwards um yeah Yeah. that's I I would totally echo what what wise people have said to you too like it that numbness like you're at the epicenter of it, right? There's only so much that one person can handle at one time. Um, yeah. Yeah. There were so many people crying at her funeral and stuff. That my yeah. Mom was like, this is, everybody is saying goodbye to her right now. She's like, you already said your goodbye. Yeah. And so. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really powerful observation too. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, even the fact that there's a, I think that, you know, we don't talk about this, but with new, the death of young children as well, like, you also have to carry the logistical responsibility of parenting them through a funeral. You know what I mean? And how horrible that weight is. Right. And those, 
those decisions are. So there's a part of it, like you said, that's for a community of people who love her, but it's still, you kind of have to shore yourself up and protect yourself as you move through that as well. Yeah. It definitely felt like the funeral wasn't for me. It felt like it was kind of for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, today, how do you honor Zariah's memory? How do you talk about her um, and and keep her spirit alive with you? I think usually this is hard right now because we're talking about yeah all the hard things that happen. But I feel like a lot of people try to avoid talking about her and stuff. But I don't shy away from it and stuff. And I think mm-hmm. people are kind of surprised about that. Like I'll talk about, I don't know if it just fits in with the conversation. I'll bring her up and stuff like that. And sometimes people don't know what to say, but I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to just act like she didn't exist because it might right. make people uncomfortable and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we talk about her a lot around all of our kids, our kids, even the ones that haven't met her talk about her sometimes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they'll see a picture and they're like, oh, yeah, and that's my sister Zariah right there and stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> mm-hmm. looking through old pictures and showing people. Yeah. That's it's so beautiful. beautiful. It makes, I mean, and I'm tearing up right now too, because I just think it's, isn't it crazy that like our kids can um, intuit and like can build bond and re- have this kind of relationship with them even, even after they've passed, which is so cool or an idea of who they were and how they fit into your family. That's so beautiful mm-hmm. that you do that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing about her life, Sarah. And I echo what Martha said of, it's just an honor to know her through you. Yeah. Um, I'd also love to know, you know, how did she change your life? Like, how has she impacted the mother that you are today and the woman that you are today? Yeah, I think, I think I'd learned this some just from working in the NICU and like working with some of those like really high needs, like chronic kiddos and stuff, but just like how valuable like each and every one of these kids' lives are. Like, even Mm -hmm. though she had so many disabilities, like she was bringing like so much joy into the world she was so Mm -hmm. happy she made people smile all the time yeah she yeah knew who grandma was she knew who all (laughs) grants and uncles were and stuff and it was yeah I don't know she just loved playing and was just a joy to be around and her smile just brought a smile to everybody Mm -hmm. else's face and yeah as you talk about it your face lights up like instantly (laughs) it's so beautiful (laughs) when you talk about her smile your whole face lights up (laughs) It's beautiful, Sarah. And I wonder then, you know, after after she had passed, when did you and your husband even feel open to having the conversation of growing your family? You know, when did you feel like you were even ready to have those beginning conversations? Okay, so confession time. This was during the period I was completely numb, and I think I was just trying to fill this emptiness and stuff like this and so um it was about like two weeks after she had passed away and we got a phone call about a six-year-old girl who was supposed to go back to her mom in about six months and so I was like the only reason I even considered it and so I was like this is only going to be short term and stuff like this and my husband really didn't want to tell me no at the time and so we said yes about two weeks after Zariah passed and again this was during the period where I was like almost completely numb and so I was able Mm -hmm. to function pretty normally when she first came in and yeah they always say yeah don't take in foster kids like to like fill needs in your own life and I will fully admit that in that situation that that's kind of what we did um 
yeah, I mean, I was a hot mess, but we did it anyway. And we should be getting an adoption date for that girl on Friday. And so, oh my gosh, how God works. And even though this was probably a really poor decision that he's turned it into something beautiful and she's amazing and is a perfect fit for our family. And so, yeah, yeah, that was probably, it was not a good decision, but it's worked out. It's in a really beautiful way. So, <laughs> right. I, oh wow! To be super, to be super fair to you, though, there is there is something to be said about um, you. You have incredible skills as a parent and and a, as a you know a nurse and and a caretaker and all these different things. So, pouring the, yourself back into something like that is also good. It's good for you, but it's also good for the world too. Um, that's yeah, my I, opinion anyway. Yeah. I think my kids were never lacking. Like I always of made course, my kids have all of the attention, everything they needed, even as I was like just in this very fresh, like grief period. But I think what was lacking though, is I wasn't giving myself the time and space that I needed sure, to yeah, heal. Yeah. And so I w- was like neglecting myself. My kids had everything mm-hmm. in there that they needed, but I was neglecting myself some mm-hmm. through that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with that kind of, when maybe that like realization hit you, was there like a moment when you were like, okay, it's time to invest back into myself? And if so, like what did that, what did those first steps look like for you? I honestly went through like kind of phases. I originally met with a therapist, not go very well, Mm -hmm. did not bond with her. Um, But also I think I just wasn't quite ready. Like, yeah, sure. I think because I was still numb and stuff. So I could talk about everything that happened. And there would be like almost no emotional response from me. Sure. The first time after her death that I really had an emotional response was I went back to her grave site about a month after Mm -hmm. exactly a month after she had passed. I just like lost it and was bawling and bawling. But then again, after I left there, I felt kind of numb again. And I think I would kind of have moments after that where I would get really emotional, but then I would go numb again. And this probably happened over the next six months. And I honestly, I'd heard from lots of people who had lost kids that year two is always the hardest because the reality of it sets in. And I feel like that's been true for me because I used to be able to tell almost anybody her story without getting emotional and... I don't know, like the last six to nine months. Yeah, I get emotional just looking at pictures of her that didn't happen in year one. Um, yeah. Yeah, I get emotional talking about it and all of this stuff. It's And so I wasn't sure how that would play out in my own life. But yeah, got back in to therapy um, this year. And I think I'm in a really much better spot to talk about and stuff in going bringing myself back to that place now that I'm at this point and just really processing like what I felt in that moment and so I feel like I've even been doing a lot of healing like this year as well because I Mm. I just feel like I'm in a better place for it yeah yeah I I too I think it's so even like the little things that you've shared about how you are feeling different things when looking at photographs or talking about it like those are and sometimes I think for, you know, just for people who are listening, sometimes it feels like, oh, oh, I'm, I am, I'm struggling again, but really it could be, it's a sign of like healing, right? It's this growth of being able to experience different emotions and sit with them. Um, so, I mean, really huge kudos to you for doing all of that work while also 
being a full-time parent and working. And I know it's just, P- it's just quote unquote PRN, but still, that's still working. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. So four of the six kiddos in our house right now have medical needs. And so I am running yeah. around like crazy taking people to. Did place. you say six kids? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's okay. Incredible. Can we talk about that? So <laughs> can we talk a little bit about what your family building journey has yeah. looked like as, as parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when Zariah passed away, we had two other foster kids that were in our house. Um, we had adopted Zariah three months before she passed away. Um, and one of the kids had only been with us three weeks. And so that, and she was old enough to like know what was going on and stuff. And she did not have medical needs. So I didn't really know what to do. This is kind of backtracking, but yeah, I didn't know what to do with the kids okay. whenever Zariah was in the hospital dying and stuff. And so they found emergency respite for them. They both went to the same place. I was hysterical. I was wondering if we should even bring back the eight-year-old. I'm like, she's only been with us eight weeks. Would it be better if she just got moved again and like never knew that this happened? Um, But yeah, her therapist and her caseworker thought if we could handle it, it would be best for her to stay with us. And so that's what we did with that. Um, Yeah. So we had those two, Xavier and Braylee, who are who got adopted last year. Wow. Um, yeah. And then we got our kiddo yeah, two weeks after she passed. Um, we, we should be getting adoption date for on Friday. Can't sh- share her name yet because yeah, sure, she's not yeah. adopted yet. And then the following month, so this was almost two months after Zariah passed away, I get a call from Zariah's old caseworker. And yeah, she tells me that they have this kiddo that has medical needs. Um, There are concerns with the previous foster parents and stuff, lying about some of his medical needs and what he is and isn't doing at home. The therapist had hotlined or reported it or something. And she said, I know you guys have a lot going on, um, but you guys were like the first people that came to my mind with this situation and stuff. And so we had said, so we said yes again. Um, it was kind of funny though, because Steve had made a comment. My husband, Steve had made a comment. He was like, the only way you're taking any more kids is if they're like under one, <laughs> um, like are a boy. Cause he felt outnumbered at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and ideally if they have medical needs. And so it kind of like hit all of those boxes and oh, stuff like yeah. that. Cause <laughs> I think and he had a feeding tube and stuff at the time too. And I think he felt like, I don't know, he had learned all of these skills and stuff. And he felt like yeah. taking care of Zariah, like this is what we were called to do and stuff like that. And so, yeah, literally probably one of the only kids we probably would have said yes to at that time. So then we took in Kobe, who was adopted last Monday. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Last Monday? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. Congratulations to yeah, all of And he's amazing. supposed to get his G2 about May 4th, which we're really Whoa. excited about. Yeah. That's a fun 2023 day. is a celebration. Is a Holy cow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And then yeah, one of our other kiddos is a sibling to Xavier. So he had a baby brother that was born in November. So we took in his little brother. And then mm-hmm. we recently got another placement who we had done respite for before and – yeah, when we got when someone contacted us and said that she was needing a home, we already knew her and stuff. And we're like, yeah, we can't just let her go to random strangers. We're gonna take her in. Yeah. So that's kind of how that all happened. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's 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 obviously there's so many different elements to um, foster and adoption because for the kiddos, it means you know 
trauma and interruption to their nuclear family lives to um uh but also this the unique type of bond that exists between really special foster parents like you and your husband who can um create safety for them where there is none is is really beautiful yeah and even though even in safe situations it sometimes takes a lot for those kids to actually still feel safe yeah yeah one of my kids who's been here I won't call them out but one of my kids that's been here for a long time um even though she's been with us forever and she still will have moments where she just feels really really unsafe it's just yeah Yeah. especially when you have trauma like at such a young age it like forever changes the way the brain functions and yeah Yeah, it's just so hard for these kids. I mean, yeah, you take in a six-year-old that already has PTSD and it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also another great reason, um, you know, again, another kudos to you for doing that healing for yourself because you're modeling the type of um, resilient behavior that that can model coping skills for them as they move through life, what that looks like. You yeah, know, as- all of my other kiddos are in counseling right now, and they were like confused about why I was going to counseling and stuff. And I talked to them, and they still didn't seem to quite get it and stuff. But <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Well, and maybe then that's a good kind of segue into one of our questions of just maybe some of the misconceptions that you wish people understood about foster families or fostering. Um, you know what? as you've been doing this now, what is something that you wish people understood that maybe is misunderstood? I wish people understood more like just how freaking hard it is because I feel like it's kind of foster care and adoption is kind of like glorified in the media and stuff. And that's not the reality of it. People don't post videos of their kids having meltdowns and throwing things and saying, I hate you. And your six-year-old is yeah cursing like a sailor like while they're like mm-hmm. completely in fight or flight mode because they got triggered by something yeah um yeah and so yeah I think I just yeah wish people knew more about like the reality of it it's not like all rainbows and butterflies it's not this happy ending that's all like wrapped up in a bow because i don't you see movies and they struggle at first and everything but by the yeah. end, they're just one big happy family and right it's, right these kids right. are going to continually struggle and a lot of times like all the way like through adulthood like these aren't things yeah. that they're just gonna like grow out of and get over yeah. like these things have like permanently like it's changed the wiring of their brain they're going to be forever impacted by these things even if it happened when they were really young the yeah. body remembers what happened to them Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it sounds like even, I mean, obviously providing people in your community then with foster families with even more support is probably ideal, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a certain limitation to what can be done too, but like there's obviously policy advocacy that can be done and, and things like that. I'm for sure would, I would imagine people can look in their, their localities to see what support they can give too, right? Yeah, I know people who are involved in policy and stuff like that. I'm a little bit too busy. But yeah, there's a lot of really good work that needs to be done there. Yeah, for sure. For right. sure. You bring up a really good point, too. I mean, I think anybody who raises children knows that they're the behavioral, the social emotional behavioral aspect can sometimes be the hardest part. But that idea of, too, when you're seeing children out and um, out and about and you 
see them in schools and other environments too. This reminder that trauma presents itself really differently for kids like that too. And so you said like that idea of kind of emotional explosions or triggers, stuff like that, you know, um, it's, um, it's, it's representative of their, them being stuck in fight or flight, not, not who they are. Right. It's, um, it's helpful to kind of have that lens on it too, so that we can support them better and understand them better too. Yeah. And I think I was just had this random thought that popped in my head, but yeah, uh, something that foster care, I think opened my eyes to, and it was something that I don't think most NICU nurses like ever think of is like medical trauma. And that's something I never, ever thought of until I started fostering. And like Zariah had really bad medical trauma and like, I think my other boys might have to like some degree and stuff that, and, but just also like the impact of those early even months or days and everything and just the research I've done on trauma. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how much trauma have these babies gone through from being in the NICU for three, for three months, like from not getting held enough from having these painful procedures done and everything. I'm like, this is probably like changing the wiring of like, all of our NICU babies' brains too. And it was something I had like never even really thought of before. Yeah. Just a reminder too, then like that, the loving touch, the loving intervention, the the safety providing for them is even more important for providers and their parents too. Yeah. yeah. And the sense. brain can, all, the brain is resilient. It can rewire mm-hmm. itself. Like the brain can change, it can change the wiring of the brain, but the brain is resilient and it can rewire itself and form new pathways and everything. And so, yeah. Just yeah. keep loving on your babies and you will, yeah. I've seen my son, Xavier, who was, he was extremely neglected. He was in the NICU for five weeks at birth, but he was extremely neglected after that point. And it like, he literally, there were changes on his MRI from the extreme neglect, right? Mm-hmm. Places of the brain that were underdeveloped. And they said like, it's literally because he like never used these places of his brain. He just laid in bed all day. And I have just seen him come so far. He never smiled. He didn't want to be touched. He didn't want to be held. And now he's a happy little boy who's he just smiles all the time and laughs and giggles and stuff. And he has come such a long way and he's still feeling a lot of the effects of that neglect, but he has come so far. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. So not to go back a little bit, but I would love to hear from you of ways that loved ones can support NICU mothers and families. Um, What are some tangible ways that you have felt support that meant a lot to you guys? And if we know um, friends and family that are fostering, how can we support you? Um, So personally, I felt like we, I don't know, we just came from it from a unique experience. We didn't, I wasn't freshly postpartum. Um, Everybody else was in really stable areas. The NICU was right in our hometown. Um, And so being a NICU parent for these foster kids wasn't stressful in that way that it probably is for other people. But I've, from what I've seen from being a NICU nurse, I think one of the biggest things that I've seen parents struggle with is yeah, finding childcare for their other kids if they have it and stuff, especially Mm -hmm. with like all of these COVID policies and stuff like parents wouldn't be able to visit their babies for days because they couldn't find anybody else to watch their kids. And and it's something like so little, like watching somebody's kid for an hour or two so that way they can go see their baby, but it makes such a huge impact and stuff. And yeah. And people like, yeah, that lived a couple hours away and they're staying at the Ronald McDonald's house and stuff while their kid is in the NICU. 
And then if like their neighbors and stuff helped take care of their house while they were gone and like feed their dogs and stuff. And I've even heard people like, yeah, they literally clean the inside of their house and stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, meals for after they get home. It's not, I feel like sometimes that can be skipped because they're not, they didn't just have a baby. They had their baby two months ago or whatever. Yeah, good point. Right. But it's it's still a really big transition bringing a baby home. And mm-hmm. they could have been living out of the Ronald McDonald house for like two months and they're completely unprepared at home and stuff. And they don't have things already or whatnot. No, that's super helpful. Um, the friend that I know, they made like an Amazon wish list and it was just because they had, were the same thing. They were like, we haven't had this age of kid we need all of these things or like so people came in and donated and just like tried to support in that way but um I love that you just kind of bring it back to those practical things as if you were freshly postpartum because you guys still deserve and need that attention and um relief of not having to think about cooking and all of those things too so I appreciate yeah and a lot of these moms have also like miss their baby shower and stuff too like yes and so I've had moms come in they're like my baby shower is supposed to be tomorrow and I'm like oh gosh like right sometimes their baby was born so early they didn't even have a baby shower planned yet and now they're an hour and a half from where they live and they're not thinking about planning a baby shower yet and they don't get all of the stuff that most first-time moms get because it was just like an oversight and all of the chaos of their baby being born early right so maybe if we have some listeners listening who, um, listening to your story, have maybe always had a heart for foster care or always thought that that may be something that they would want to do, what you know encouragement would you offer to those that are maybe embarking on that first step of becoming foster parents? Um, it really, yeah. Medical foster care, I would recommend some different things. And if you are just doing typical foster yeah. care, if you, regardless, you probably, one of you needs a job. It is fairly flexible, but especially if you're fostering kids with medical needs, you're going to have unexpected admissions. You're going to have a bunch of appointments. You're going to have specialist appointments. And if you don't take this appointment right now, they're not going to be able to see you for another six months. So you better make this work. (laughs) Sure. um, And so that's kind of what I had to do. Um, But we were in a financial situation where we were able to do that. I think it would be really hard to be a medical foster mom if I had a like nine to five, if we both had like nine to five jobs and stuff like that. And so I think some of the logistical things sometimes get overlooked. I've seen that happen. I've seen people take placements and they're like, crap, what are we supposed to do with this baby now? Or yeah, no places in our area have childcare for kids under two. There's like a six month waiting list everywhere. Right. And they're like, crap, we both work full time. And just make sure you have a good support system because yeah, the average foster parent only lasts like a year and then they usually quit because it's just so hard and it's so isolating. And yeah, a lot of times it's because of lack of support. And so I think having not everyone has a good support system and some people are those kind of people that can make it work without that. I am not one of those people. We have a ton of support and a ton of people helping us. And yeah, there's just so many, there's so many different aspects I could go on and on. Yeah, of course. That could be like its own podcast episode, right? (laughs) Well, and maybe for those listening that are NICU foster moms, um, you know, what words of hope and encouragement would you offer them? Keep advocating for your kiddos. Um, At first, you first meet your baby. The doctors honestly probably know the baby better than you are. So listen to the doctors and listen to the nurses. Um, 
they know what they're talking about a lot of the time. Uh, but then eventually after they come home from the NICU and stuff, you are going to become that child's biggest advocate and don't be afraid to speak up and get that child the help mm. they need and everything. So, Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably um, about all of your kiddos. Um, it's an honor to sit in this space with you and um, honor Zariah's life and just the remarkable mom that you are today. So thank you so much. And for honoring NICU foster mamas everywhere. Uh, we hope that any of the NICU foster moms listening today have felt heard and seen. And um, I heard you mention it a couple of times throughout the episode of just the isolation of being a foster parent. And so um, if you are a foster NICU mom, we hope that you feel seen and heard and um, just reminded that you are not alone, that you don't carry this weight alone um, and this grief alone, that we are with you. So uh, thank you again, Sarah, for being here and for the advocacy and work that you do every single day. It was an honor to hear your heart and get to know you more. And um, to all of our mamas listening, we love you. We will be back next week. And um, thank you so much for being a part of this community. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. If you loved this episode, we'd be so grateful for a review on any of the podcast platforms. And we'd love to continue connecting with you via our social media pages or our private Facebook group. And ultimately, Nikki Mama, welcome to the sisterhood.